Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Brandon Hobson at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. National Book Award finalist Brandon Hobson is the author of four novels, including the critically acclaimed Where the Dead Sit Talking. Hobson's layered coming-of-age story focuses around a Cherokee boy named Sequoia. After a tumultuous childhood marked by abuse and neglect, sensitive Sequoia is thrown into the foster system. While living with the eccentric Trout family in Oklahoma, he meets and develops feelings for a wayward young artist who shares his native heritage and checkered family history. Hobson himself is an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and is in total control of his material in this masterly tale of life and death, according to Kirkus Reviews. Where the Dead Sit Talking garnered a host of literary honors and came within striking distance of the 2018 National Book Award for Fiction. In addition to his career as a novelist, Hobson is a short fiction writer, essayist, and educator. He is assistant professor of creative writing at New Mexico State University and a writing mentor at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Thanks everyone for coming out. Um, It's great to be here and, and thanks for having me. So I'm going to read a little bit from the book, and, and then I, I've read from it so much, and uh, whether you've read it or not, um, it always seems to me that these types of things work better in terms of a conversation, question and answer uh, about the, the, the subject matter or about the writing process, and I'm happy to talk about that rather than read for 30 minutes like uh, I'm reading from you know a dissertation or something. and. And then after you know ten minutes, people sin- tend to just uh, get very bored. So I know that uh, I know how that the, those uh, uh, that works out. So um, so if if you have not read uh, the book, as uh, as she said, um, it is set in Oklahoma, and it's uh, about a, a teenage boy in a foster care system. He's Native American, placed in a non-Native uh, foster home. Um, and, and one of the, the ideas I, I was thinking about when writing this is about the idea of displacement, right? Not just in terms of um, foster kids feeling displaced because they're, uh, they're in and out of shelters a lot, they're in foster homes, and they're, they're always continually asking themselves, where is home? Um, what, where is my family? What am, you know, where, where, 
I'm looking for some stability here, right? Uh, and to, to sort of mirror that with the Cherokee experience, which is also other tribes as well, following the Trail of Tears, that idea of feeling displaced, right? As, as they followed my ancestors, walked the Trail of Tears, um, which has been a story that's always fascinated and horrified me, um, and the, the idea of being displaced, right? And asking, asking themselves, where, where is our home, right? Where, where are we going? What are we doing? Those kinds of questions. So, um, so I'm going to read uh, a little bit, uh, a couple of places here, and I'm going to start with um, just a couple of pages from uh, Sequoia's first night in in foster care in this uh, with this family, um, and there are two other foster kids in this home. One is a boy named George who is uh, not native, um, but shares a room with Sequoia. Uh, and then there's uh, Rosemary, whom uh, Sequoia becomes very obsessed with uh, in, in almost a dangerous way, becomes obsessed, uh, leading to questions of his own identity. Um, at 14, 15 years old, he's looking, you know, how, how I dress and questions of gender as well as his own uh, native identity. Uh, as well, and so, um, so this is the first night in uh, in foster foster care. Looking back, I realize I wanted more than anything else to be liked, accepted. Moving from place to place, from shelter to foster home, almost always took its toll. And at 15, I'd never gotten over the crippling anxiety of sleeping in a new room a new bed, living in a whole new environment. While the shelter was confining and supposed to be short-term placement, I'd grown to appreciate having my own room and how easy it was to manipulate the staff and sneak away at night. Foster homes were different. Foster homes were real families in real houses with burglar alarms and neighborhood watch groups. A teenager couldn't walk around in such a neighborhood late at night and get away with it. Agnes and Harold told me how proud they were of George's donations and participation in the annual walkathon for leukemia, as well as his time spent volunteering at the local animal shelter and the public library, and that they thought other students should be as passionate and proactive about such issues as he was. Over the past summer, he'd done even more. His picture was in the newspaper for collecting used athletic shoes for the Perpetual Prosperity Pumps Foundation that raised awareness of poverty in Ghana or somewhere. Agnes was quoted in the paper as saying, George has such a big heart. We're proud of Rosemary's accomplishments too, she said, but did not mention any of them. The first night in Foster, Care was strange. It came upon me like a burning memory, how shadows spread across the wall in this new room. And in trying to sleep, I revisited all the other rooms where I had slept in my past. My room at the shelter, with its dull concrete walls, absent of life and color, with one small window facing the brick building next door. 
my room in our first house, a small house built of rock that sat near a hill in the woods in Steely Hollow, with a bedroom full of wallpaper of ships at sea, and the small closet I feared held the monsters that lived there, creatures that crawled up from the dirt below the house, who howled in the night, whose shadows cast jagged shards of light across the ceiling when I tried to sleep. My room in the small apartment above the bookstore where I slept with a blanket. I was more afraid there than anywhere. I heard sirens and traffic sounds at night. There were voices from the street outside. This room was the smallest room I've ever seen, as I now recall, and my mother's footsteps on the hardwood floors kept me awake until late in the night. My room in the foster home after my mother was locked up the first time, a room I shared with two other boys who slept in bunk beds. I slept on a trundle bed against the wall across from the window. The room was never frightening like some of the other rooms, though the boy on the top bunk thought it was and spent many nights crying himself to sleep. And into this new room I was now thrown, or so it seemed, trying to sleep again, this room with its clock ticking on the wall by the door, with its shadows and lights stretching across the wall and ceiling, and I remember how that first night in bed, I could hear George making sounds of explosions and gunfire with his mouth. It was something a younger boy might do while playing army. In the darkness, I stared at the ceiling and waited for him to stop. After it went on a while, I finally sat up in bed and looked over at him. I'm trying to sleep, I said. I forgot you were here, he said. I'm right here. I lay in the bed with my arm over my eyes, trying to go to sleep. I felt a sadness, but also a kind of confusion. There was nothing I was afraid of and nothing to look forward to, which made me want to leave. And I will skip forward to a little bit later in the book. This part is with uh, Sequoia. Uh, going for a walk, a little bit later in the book. Okay, I decided I needed to go out for a walk. That afternoon, the wind blew cold and heavy in circular gusts. I left because I couldn't bear to sit in the house and feel sorry for myself. I needed to keep moving, to think about other things and walk around in the woods for a little while. With my coat on, I took the trail behind the house I saw red-winged blackbirds gather at the windowsill as I left. I saw a red-tailed hawk return to its same nesting tree in the blowing wind. Down the road, an amber pond with moss on the bank was full of catfish and largemouth bass. George told me he had seen bullfrogs and yellow-striped ribbon snakes there, along with muskrats swimming near the bank. As I walked through the woods, I saw fog hanging over the tree trail ahead of me. I saw cedar wax wings with apple blossom petals in their beaks, watching me from their branch. The air was heavy with the smell of dead things. 
As I walked, I felt an increasing apprehension for my life and everything around me. I thought of my friend Eddie, who was homeless for a while back in Tulsa. Eddie kept running away. I knew very little of his home life. He joined up with a few others and they lived in and out of shelters, which was where I met him. When they were on the street, they prostituted themselves, crept around the city at night, through winding tunnels, dark streets, sidling up on drunken old men, and then rummaging through their wallets, prying up particle board and removing nails, anything they could find and use as weapons if they needed to. They weren't afraid of anything. I knew I could never be like that. I thought I heard running water, but there was no water. I thought of my childhood in Cherokee County. When I was younger and playing in the Illinois River, I would make paper boats and float them down the river. I found strange toys there, pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and a pl plastic wind-up kangaroo that hopped. I found a broken music box, old tennis balls. I found a small miniature piano that didn't work regardless of how hard I banged on its keys. I remember wondering why people threw things away like this or whether they set them free. The people who lived nearby must have thought the river would have swallowed up all those objects and carried them away. I walked down a trail past trees with roots dug deep into the earth. Birds flew out of a scattering of trees making noises. I gazed into the clouds, hoping for a sign, an answer, a signal, but nothing came. That night I woke to what sounded like a gasp or a faint cry. I sat up in bed and looked over at George, who was still asleep. I wasn't sure whether there was really a sound or whether I dreamed, dreamed it. I lay in bed for a moment with my arm over my eyes, but I felt restless. Thirsty, I got up and went downstairs to the kitchen, turned on the light, and filled a glass of tap water. It was after three in the morning. The house was dark, dead silent. From the kitchen window, I could see the swing set out back near the shed. I felt it calling to me in the moonlight. I found myself staring at it as I drank the water, thinking about a park I went to with my mother when I was little, a park very far away from here. I thought about swinging high on that swing set, my mother pushing me from behind. When I finished the water, I put the glass in the sink and slipped out the back screen door. The swing set was outlined in a strange armature of blue light. Outside in the elements of the winter night, I was drowsy and sensitive to everything around me. The moonlight, the chill, the rustle of trees in the wind, the vast darkness that stretched past the yard into the woods. I sat on the cold seat of the swing and gripped the chains where a fringe of frost gathered and made my hands even colder. 
Slowly, I began swinging myself back and forth, kicking my feet as I swung higher and higher, and soon I was swinging as high as I could. The swing was squeaking and my head was buzzing. I'm not sure how long I kept swinging that night, but thinking back, it seems like only an instant. I remember feeling overwhelmed with joy and with secrecy, as if the whole world was asleep and I was alone in the country, the only person elated. When I came to a stop, I walked through the yard drowsily and slipped back inside. I locked the sliding door and quietly made my way upstairs, stepping lightly through the hall and back into my room where George was still sleeping with his mouth open. I walked over to him and looked down at him. He was sleeping really heavily, I could tell. I wanted him to jolt awake and felt a strange thrill at the thought of scratching him. I stared, I started to reach for his mouth but stopped myself. Back in my own bed, I breathed heavily and my heart raced. Soon I grew sleepy again. I saw a grainy shape flash across the ceiling. I saw patterns of light that looked like small children dancing on the dark walls. And I'm going to read one more short little part um, of his first day at school. As I walked into the classroom, the algebra teacher, whose name was Mr. Gillis, looked at me through thick glasses and asked me my name. His eyes were large and magnified by his lenses. When I told him, he started shuffling through papers on his desk. Did they send you here? He asked. I handed him my schedule and he looked at it. Sequoia. Sequoia? Yeah. Do you have a book? He asked. What book? The algebra textbook. No. He stared at me as if trying to register my response. He looked to the hall, then at my schedule again. He seemed confused. Sequoia, he said. There's an extra textbook here somewhere. What day is this? Go ahead and have a seat. Is it a tardy, I asked. Is what a tardy? Me. Oh, he said. Oh, it's your first day. You're a new student? So no tardy, I said. That's correct. I sat in the desk by the window and watched him. He removed his glasses and then put them back on. He spent a good minute trying to get everyone's attention. Then he turned on the overhead projector and walked over to turn off the lights. The room dimmed and a calmness fell over everyone. A couple of boys in the rows in front of me turned around and looked at my face. Mr. Gillis sat at the overhead and started writing problems that appeared on the screen. He wrote in green marker, despite the fact that one of the students, a girl in black lipstick, reminded him she was colorblind. 
He stared into the projector, the light illuminating his face. A few students came in late, but he seemed neither aware nor interested. Three or four students in the back of the class were face down on their desks. A boy was mouthing something to a girl, making smoking gestures. Negative six, Mr. Gillis said. I started feeling sleepy. A boy in the row over from me was sketching a fighter jet on a piece of notebook paper. His concentration was intense. I rested my head on my desk and drowsily watched him. He shaded in details with his pencil. He puckered his face as he drew really into it. Mr. Gillis squeezed an inhaler into one nostril, which made a horrible sound. I looked away and stared out the window where a bird was perched on the ledge, preening itself. In the distant sky, I saw the dot of a plane drifting slowly into a cloud. The bird suddenly flew away. Mr. Gillis stared into the blue light of the projector. Negative, he kept saying. Later, during the last period of the day, I saw Mr. Gillis again in the restroom on the third floor. He was standing under the window. I went to the sink and looked at myself in the mirror. I turned on the cold water and washed my hands, drying them afterward with a brown paper towel from the dispenser. Hello, Sequoia, he said. He was looking at me as if waiting for me to say something, but I had nothing to say. Don't mind me, he said. I'm just taking a break trying to find a quiet place to gather myself after a long day. The teacher's lounge is full of smoke. I'm a conversationalist, but not a smoker, Sequoia. What can I say? I'm on meds for severe anxiety. It causes insomnia and stimulates a ringing in my left ear. He took out his inhaler and sprayed it into both nostrils. Nobody wants to talk anymore, he said. My ex-wife and I used to stay up late in the night talking about everything. Constellations, Sequoia. She made us hot tea and then we played checkers. We played Monopoly, the game of life. We talked about adopting kids from Vietnam, troubled kids. Tell me, what happened to your face? I went to the urinal. On the wall in front of me, someone had drawn a stick figure holding a gun. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Brandon Hobson and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Hobson is able to write so well from a child's perspective. So much of it, you know, and I think so much of, of writing is, you know, comes down to, to imagery, you know, and it's, it's, as a creative writing teacher, and I tell my students this, right, it's always, you know, show, don't tell. Because our, our tendency often is to tell, right, and give a lot of sort of exposition, you know, rather than giving a, putting us in the moment, right, and, and showing us. Uh, 
and that that involves uh, usually a lot of description, you know, a lot of really just putting yourself in the moment, and you know, it, 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 there are a lot of I think in this the first night being away, you know, into a new a new room. There's a lot of descriptions of shadows and lights, you know, the way that they sort of. I remember being a kid and always, you know, uh, trying to go to sleep at night and and seeing, you know, sort of various shapes of light, you know, from, from the window on the ceiling or on the wall. And, and uh, so, you know, I was really trying to pick up on that sort of anxiety, I guess, of trying to, to get comfortable and go to sleep, but, um, you know, being distracted by, uh, by that. But, but again, yeah, I mean, it's always trying to put, put yourself in the situation and, and describe it as visually as you possibly can. That's what I, I try to do with, in with that scene especially. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. This audience member asks about the theme of resilience and where the dead sit talking. Well, resilience, I think, uh, certainly at the end, I, you know, by the end of the book, I hope that there's a sense of uh, resilience. Um, you know, but I didn't go too much into obviously you know the historical context with with uh, you know the trail. Um, although my new book does, the one that I'm working on my editor with now uh, is a lot more. It's it's um, more about how we deal with grief uh, and loss and how different people within. It's about one family and how they're each dealing with grief. Uh, different ages, two siblings are dealing with it different than the mother and the father are. And, uh, uh, but then there's also an ancestral voice talking from the trail, right, um, about this. So it's a lot more historical, but it still has this, I'm, I'm very interested in this idea of displacement, right, and identity. And uh, uh, so, I, I mean, um, certainly I, th I think, I, I hope by the end, um, you know, there, there's this idea, a little bit of uh, resilience that, or survive. I don't know if resilience, but it's certainly survival, right? I've survived this, and things are going to be okay, right? Um, that idea uh, is, yeah, I'm interested in, certainly, yeah. Uh, I, and I should probably add, too, that... Um, so I was a, I was a foster, I, or uh, I didn't work with, I worked some with foster kids, but I was a social worker for seven years and, um, in Oklahoma and worked uh, with uh, kids, some kids who were locked up in juvenile detention, some kids who were foster kids, um, and, and also families, you know, dealing with separation, families dealing with, you know, the, on brink of emotional collapse because of kids being removed, and uh, uh, so that's an extremely um, under, underpaid and underappreciated job. Our social workers, you know, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I did it for seven years, and uh, that last year I just could not do it anymore. It's just absolutely draining, and the sort of you know, trauma, and you know, then and, and and they what they tell you is um, you don't take it home with you, right? You leave your work at at the job, and then you don't take it home. But you can't do that. Right? I mean, you all know that you can't. You take stuff home. That's just you know, 
Um, so, so it's, it's extremely hard. Um, I do like, uh, and I, I, do, I did like working with, with kids, um, and, and especially kids who, uh, you know, have, uh, have been through trauma. And, uh, um, but it's, it's, it's extremely uh, underappreciated, I feel like, at least in Oklahoma. I don't know about Minnesota, and in Oklahoma, it really is. Um, hopefully, I hope it's better here in other places, but, um, but you know, the, our social workers, uh, you know, are, are in, in, I mean, you know, you have to be really strong. I worked with a lot of people that had done it for years and years and years, and I just, they're just amazing people to me. Um, but I knew that, you know, from that experience, I really had to write about it. I, I um, uh, wanted specifically with Sequoia's voice um, to, uh, to provide a voice for, first of all, I thought there, there's not a whole lot of fiction written about, not much written about foster care, right? And there's, there's certainly not about Native American foster care uh, or Native American kids. In, in fact, people are always asking me all the time, you know, who are some Native American writers that I should be reading, you know, and, and uh, I mean, they're all over. There's a lot of Native uh, writers, you know. Louise Erdrich is right here, right? Isn't she uh, in, you know, and is one of my heroes, actually. Um, uh, but, uh, you, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, what we call a third wave, I think, of Native writers that are coming up. I work with, I teach with uh, people like uh, Laylee Long Soldier at, at uh, Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and she's a poet um, uh, who won the, uh, the uh, oh, I don't know if it's the National Book Critics or the Penn Award. She won a very big, I think it was one of the Penn Awards. Anyway, she's, she's a young woman who's an amazing poet, Laylee Long Soldier. Um, Tommy Orange is uh, you know another young man who's uh, just, exploded right away with his first book. Um, uh, you know, a guy named Jake Skeets, uh, who's a poet, a Native American poet, um, who's young that people, Tommy Pico is another one, um, Erica Wirth, there are all these uh, great young writers that people still aren't yet hearing of um, that I hope is beginning to, um, you know, uh, sort of take off a lot more, but, uh, um, but you know, to get back to what I was saying earlier is you know the the idea of not a lot of Native American, um, you know, fiction being uh, people are always sort of asking about about this. And I thought when I wrote this book, there certainly, you know, there ha hasn't been much. I, Sherman Alexie wrote one story about foster care, you know, but a lot of people aren't teaching him anymore. Um, so. Um, you know, it certainly seemed to me like, uh, you know, it, it needs to be addressed a lot more. And, and also, I, I do want to add, um, I haven't talked about Rosemary in this book too, but um, missing and murdered indigenous women, right, is a huge, huge deal. And I would, in the back of my mind, I was also thinking about, you know, here's a, here's a, a young native and she's Kiowa, you know. Um, uh, a young, young native girl who, who um, for a while in the book, she, she leaves and she goes missing. And I was sort of thinking of that idea that, she, you know, um, uh, the, 
I don't know if Minnesota is, uh, there are a lot, you know, Oklahoma, New Mexico is number one in, Miss, in maybe because we have so many indigenous, uh, you know, people there, but um, uh, Washington, uh, Arizona, Oklahoma, New Mexico, several, st I think Minnesota is up there. I really do. I, and, and you'd have to look, you could e Google that easily, you know, and, but it's got to be in the top 10. Um, but but the, the point is that there are these, there are a lot of missing and murdered indigenous women out there. And um, um, I, I would like to see more sort of literature come out, you know, about, or, or not even, it doesn't even have to be fiction, right? I would like to see more written about it, you know, to, to, to have more um, awareness of it because it is such a, a we, in New Mexico we talk about it all the time, right? But I don't know about, you know, around the country. Uh, but it is very, very scary um, because the numbers are so high. Certainly anybody going missing or, or murdered is, is obviously frightening, but, but the, the numbers are, are, yeah, are very high. Uh, so, so I was thinking about that as well when I was um, a little bit, and uh, um, even though that's not really key to the, to the overall novel, um, um, certainly wanted to include it. This question is about the ambiguity and all the doors left open in Hobson's work. Yes, um, to be, yeah, the ambiguity, right, ambiguous, which I know that a lot of people do not like, right? People do not like ambiguity at all. I know, I tend to like it a little bit because I feel like I can always, I like, it's kind of like with reading poetry. One of the things that I like when I, and I don't write poetry anymore, when I was young, or young, when I was in college, uh, I did, but um, but I don't anymore. But but I do like reading it occasionally. And one of the things I like about reading poetry is what's not said, right? I mean, we can read and, and get an understanding of something, but then there's always this layer of what's not being said that raises discussion, right? And I think certain um, fiction does that for me too, um, that, I like to often like to talk about, and I do this with students, you know, where we sort of talk about possibilities of what we think happened, right? And what's the benefit of that rather than, you know, getting all the answers, right? And sometimes it's to challenge ourselves. Um, Susan Sontag, back in the 60s, uh, I think it was in the 60s, wrote a fantastic essay called Against, uh, Against Criticism, I believe. Um, and what she talked about in this essay is when we read something, we should focus not on what its meaning is, but how it makes us feel. And that's what we should be focusing on, right? So Susan Sontag, and when I read that essay for the first time, I was like, yes, that's what I've always, you know, this is, she is saying what I've always tried to say, but I haven't been able to, right, to say it as well as Susan Sontag. And you can find this, it's, an, I'm sorry, it's, it's called Against Interpretation is what it's called. You can find it online. It's a, it's a fantastic essay. And I think it was written in the, the, the 60s. But, um, 
But, but that's, you know, the idea of uh, whether it's poetry, whether it's fiction, whether it's um, any kind of art, right? Instead of trying to look for the meaning, and I remember being an undergraduate, you know, and always, you know, struggling with meaning and uh, interpretation, right, and, and talking about it. And, and Susan Santag says, well, let's forget about that for a minute and let's think about how do you feel? How does it make, does it make you feel sad? Does it make you, it, does it make you feel a fear? Are you afraid? Does it make you feel, right, guilty? And, and, then, and then we go on discussion from there, right? So I do that with students and I say, you know, let's forget about trying to figure it out. How did it make you feel, right? And getting, getting them to think about that. So um, long answer to ultimately, I think what your, you know, your question is, um, for this book, I, I think I'm the type of writer who would rather people feel certain ways than have definitive answers, and I don't know if that's a great, you know, and only because that's the type of reader I am, I think. I like ambiguity, and uh, um, uh, although my new one uh, is, is not nearly as ambiguous as, you know, this, um, part of what I was also interested in, and this is not a spoiler, by the way, but at the beginning of the, the first page of the book, Sequoia is a man looking back on, his, on this short time in foster care and he says, this is the story about when I was living in foster care with a girl who died right in front of me. Right? He says this on the first page. So um, we could say as a creative writer, you know, that's a hook, right, to get the reader reading. But at the, on the other hand, I'm interested in what the reader, who the reader places blame on for that death, right? Do we blame Rosemary because she's suicidal? Or do we blame Sequoia because he was in the room? And, and, and you know, and I like those sort of discussions of who we tend to blame, right? And um, so, so that was part of it too, um, that my editor and I had a long discussion about um, taking some, some, of the, some of that out to make it more ambiguous, right? Um, and, and it really is more of a book, or supposed to be more of a book about suicide, about Rosemary's suicide, because of me thinking about um, the number of teenage girls who commit suicide, uh, which is, is a high number, and boys, but uh, especially indigenous, right? And, and, uh, and so that was kind of what I was thinking, you know, the, the idea of suicide, but, um, but also that Sequoia t tends to be blamed, and we often look for, he's a little bit androgynous, he's a little bit different. In 1989, uh, he has some violent tendencies, so we tend to want to blame him, right? So, uh, the, yeah, in terms of uh, the discussion questions, I think, at the end, which my editor and I came up with, you know, for book group and discussion, uh, has... Uh, after he and I had spent a long time, and my agent too, and she was, uh, uh, you know, interested in that idea of, you know, who, who we blame, right? Who do we blame for suicide, right? Um, because it's, it's uh, 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 you know, that's a, that's a question 
you know, Rosemary um, in the book uh, telling us early on that she has tried to commit suicide, right? And that's, um, she's written letters about it. And it's, and it's sad, I'm not trying to bring everybody down, you know, but I mean, it's, it's a sad reality, uh, you know, that, that this is, tends to continue to go on and, uh, among teenagers. And I thought about that when I was in social work for seven years and how kids are, you know, constantly just bombarded with uh, feelings of being overwhelmed with, uh, with hurt and, and to the point of taking their own lives. Wow, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's serious stuff. So, so that's a, it's a very, very long-winded answer, I guess, to your, you know, this idea of, you know, placing blame and ambiguity and raising discussion. But yeah, if you haven't read Susan Sontag's Against Interpretation, and if anybody teaches, or um, especially with poetry, I think it's real important to read Susan Sontag with poetry because, you know, as a teacher, um, having any kind of discussion about a poem, especially, you know, something that's very abstract, is like, what does this mean? What is the meaning? Now let's focus on, this is kind of sad, right? Let's focus, let's talk about our emotions. An emotional response, right? This audience member wonders how Brandon Hobson moved from social work to writing. Well, I mean, I, it, and I've always written. In college, I started writing, and uh, really is where, when I developed, not in high school, but in, in college is when I really developed a, a love of, of literature. And uh, um, so I'd always been writing. And, uh, but I went, into, I went into social work because my mom was a social worker. She's retired now. But... Uh, and I couldn't get, I just, it was just a job that, um, I just couldn't get a good teaching job. I couldn't, you know, and, and I was, I was out of work and she was like, well, there's this job if, I know it's not in your field or anything, but you might as well apply. I can put in a good word for you. And I was like, well, yeah, I need, you know, health insurance <laughs> and dental and stuff, you know, so yeah, I'll, right. And I like, I like working with, she knew I liked kids, right, and working with kids, so. Um, you know, so, so I did, and I, I, I uh, that's how I got, and then I had a couple, I had about three different jobs over seven years, right, um, in, in social work, and, um, but I, I continued to just, I was still reading, on my own, reading, uh, you know, novels and poetry and, and writing, and um, I'd had a master's at that point when I went into social work, but it, after that, I, I, when I just could not emotionally, I just, spent, you know, and uh, just, um, uh, you know, was doing some part-time teaching stuff, and finally um, told my wife at the time, I said, I think I just, I've always wanted to get a, a PhD, you know, so I want to, I think I want to do that, and of course, you know, she supported me 100%, and so, um, so I did that, and, and you know, that, that's really my passion, and that's always been my, since college, right, my passion, um, um, so, uh, I, I don't regret my time in, in social work, though. And, and I, I mean, I hope in those seven years I was able to... I think I was. I think, you know, I, I've helped some kids. But, uh, um, but it was, it's tough, you know. But I, I mean, you know, again, Sequoia's voice and Rosemary, this all sort of came out of observing, you know, that, that field. Our next question is how Hobson creates his characters and their unique personalities. 
there is always something about myself, especially in a, in a protagonist, right? Um, and so, like a scene, like the school scene. I mean, again, I um, remember daydreaming a lot or staring out the window a lot. And I know a lot of kids do that, you know, but, but I, I, you know, the, sometimes I see myself coming out um, being sort of you know, a very passive person, right? And so, and that's what my editor, my agents are, will sometimes say, does the character really need to be this passive? Can't they be a little bit more, <laughs> right? Like assertive or aggressive or something? And I, and, 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 that, and I struggle with that because I'm not an assertive or aggressive, you know, personality. So I do struggle with that. So I think that, you know, personality-wise, that, that there is some of me. But um, there's a, I, I try to, you know, as writers, some people are also writers in here as well. Um, you know, I always try to pick up on any kind of odd detail or stories that I, that I hear. Um, and one example would be uh, uh, George um, gets a letter um, from uh, his grandparents, right? Um, and that letter was that was taken directly from my wife, uh, who one time told me a story that her grandparents used to go on vacation, and she always said she would always say, well, they would always just um, when they would call or when they would write, they would just talk about like where they ate. They wouldn't tell us about like like anything else like they did. They didn't like what did you all do that was fun? And you know you, we don't care that you had chicken fried steak at you know like nobody cares right? It's like, you know, but that's what they were more interested in telling about the, the restaurants they ate in and what they had for dessert. And, uh, yeah, um, and, and I always thought that was a really funny story. I thought, I've got to use that somewhere. So there's a scene in here where George gets, uh, you know, and a lot of people have commented, you know, uh, when, how sad that is, right? And I mean, it's funny on the surface, but in this context of if I thought, well, if a grandparent is sending this to you know, a kid in foster care, and especially in that situation, wow, the sadness is really heightened there, you know, so, um, so, but those kind of things that I just try to, I always, you know, somebody tells me something, or, uh, you know, I always try to write down, and I keep it somewhere that, um, uh, you know, I just, in the hotel, on the, before coming here, they, the news was talking about squash season, here on the local Twin City News or something, I, I saw it and, you know, and, and I was immediately thinking, well, I, you know, I never thought about squash season, right? That, that's a, <laughs> like, you know, and the woman was uh, on the local news was talking about, you know, different ways of squash and how they're, you know, they're the most lively vegetable and the way the, the texture is and they're golden and all this. And I thought, this is great material for, <laughs> for uh, you know, for somebody to use. Somebody needs to have this conversation because what a great, there you go. Use that, Kathy, yeah. But I mean, just those kind of details, I, I, you know, I try to, I, I, yeah, I, you know, I tell my students that, you know, just, I, I mean, write it down because, you know, you're in the middle of writing a scene and all of a sudden you realize I need something quirky for this person. This, this woman is kind of eccentric maybe and, you know, and, and she has this quirky personality. What's something quirky that she could say? Oh, I've got my note here about that I wrote down about squash season, and she can go on and on about talking about squash, you know, or, or I mean, so those, I mean, we just, we can pick up on them on anywhere, you know, and, and so 
So that's what I try to do. The last question for the night comes from an audience member wondering about Hobson's writing process. Yeah, I'm a very disciplined writer, so I try to write. I don't write every day. I have two little kids, right? So that's, you know, but, but I do try to write any time that I can. Um, and so I am very disciplined. But yeah, it began with me thinking about my foster work, uh, my social work, excuse me, um, but working with foster kids in my social work and uh, thinking Sequoia's voice, um, I, the idea came with, I, the idea came with me thinking about um, a, a natives, two Native American teens being in a foster uh, care system, one of them dying, right? And how does, how does that affect everyone, right? Um, so that's just kind of that general idea that I, I started with. And I knew I wanted it, Sequoia, to be a man looking back and saying, you know, um, uh, and I can't remember the first line, you know, but, uh, um, you know, this story has to do with many years ago when I was a teenager and living in foster care, a girl died right in front of me, right? And again, like I said earlier, that's, that, that is kind of what, what I hope, what we call a hook, you know, to get the um, right on the first page or right at the beginning to, um, I teach this to my students. I always say, you know, whether it's a short story or whether it's a novel, we want to grab the reader right at the beginning. And often it's, you know, um, difficult to do that because we sort of slowly build up to, to things and then it, it can be, we can lose a reader real quickly. But, uh, but that's where I began with that, um, with, with that immediacy of, you know, someone saying, this girl died right in front of me. And, and I want to tell you the story about the short time I was in foster care when this girl died, right? Uh, and so I, I went back and just thought about, you know, I thought, well, um, so Sequoia, I knew that I wanted him to be different. I wanted him to, um, I'm interested in stereotypes, right? So uh, he, I wanted him to, to not fall into a stereotype of a typical Native American teenage boy. So um, certainly with it being said in 1989, you know, he's, he's a boy who wears, he wears eyeliner, right? Uh, which now I don't think is, is too weird in 2019, um, but in 1989, certainly, you know. Uh, you know, and, and questioning, I wanted him to question his identity, not just as a native, but also as um, his gender, right? Which, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids do. And uh, uh, so that's part of his fascination with Rosemary is, you know, um, thinking, you know, they're a lot alike and he really thinks she is really uh, cool and would like to look like her in some ways. So he's dealing with those questions of identity. Um, and, and so, uh, so I, you know, I, that started, it started from there and just all that sort of circulating around and then I just sort of just thought, okay, I've got, I've got these two great characters, what I, what I can visualize. And I've got Rosemary, I know exactly what, and I know her personality, and I've got Sequoia, 
and I've got his personality, and this is going to be fun now, right? Because I'm going to, you know, um, tell the story, and uh, so that's just, you know, um, so the early draft. The early draft is always the most fun in writing, right? Because you can just sort of go with it, and and you know, and and then your editor, your agent, and your editor will say, okay, we've got a we got to structure this a little better, right? You went on this digression way down here, and we don't need all that. It's not important to the story and all this, you know. I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't have much of an, I'm not much of an outliner, really. I, 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 mean, I kind of do it by scene. Like, I'll, I'll do it with scenes, you know? And then, um, well, and I don't want to take full credit, because my, my agent, Caroline, is one that is the one that sort of, you know, okay, structure, right? Let's... And then my editor, Mark Doughton, here at Soho is the same. And my editor now, Sarah at, at Echo, HarperCollins, is now like, you know, some of the time is a little bit confusing, so we really need to, I want you to focus on structure, you know. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I, it, it's hard for me. I don't know about, for, for you, struck, like, you know, in that big of a, a big, in a book, right, so I just, part of the, you know, is, is just writing it. And I'll just go through scenes and think, okay, I know I want to get to point B. In this book, I knew I wanted to get, he tells us on the first page, Sequoia tells us, Rosemary dies, you know, and here's this time that they're spending together in foster care and, until her suicide, right, or she dies. Um, and everything that, happens during that time period. I, so I knew there, you know, and then it goes on past that a little bit as well. Uh, but but I, I, I didn't have any kind of really like um, main outline, right? Uh, and, and I think it's important to just get it all out and get it done and then kind of go back. And I do this now, and I've done this with my new one. I take post-it notes and I'll organize the scenes so that then after I've written them I know to structure them like as a puzzle you know and it's like okay maybe this needs to go here you know so it's 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 weird but I, I don't know that I could work as well with if I had a structured outline thanks for coming That wraps up our Scott County Library Prior Lake event with Brandon Hobson. Make sure to catch our last club book event of the season with Laura Prescott at St. Paul Public Library, St. Anthony Park. Laura Prescott's highly anticipated debut, The Secrets We Keep, premiered September 3rd. It tells the true story behind the incendiary publication of the Cold War era classic, Dr. Zivago. A film treatment helmed by Oscar-nominated producer of La La Land and Bridge of Spies is already in the works. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook. 
the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.